0: Hello, and welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia, from Diochis to Jastegar III. I'm Serial, and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Umberto, and my pronouns are he, him.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 29, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, Uh which is going to be a fun one, and probably some of you in the audience will have heard of him, because he is the Antiochus that's important for Hanukkah. Oh. And I will go into it when we get there. But, okay. yeah,
0: Let me get my... He's the bad
1: guy of Hanukkah.
0: <laughs> oh, the villain of Hanukkah. I see. Yes. Hanukkah's Grinch. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I'm <Yes>. so sorry. <laughs> Maybe I should think about what I'm saying before I say it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it'll be fine. It'll work out in the end.
1: I mean, the last that we saw of this Antiochus, he had murdered a child for being no longer useful, so... That sets the vibe.
0: Right. Oh, God. I Yeah, I just remembered what happened on last episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we're going to do a great. B- bit of a rundown just so I can remember. But I have here a bit of a family tree with a lot of things going on. And last episode was very weird because it was just a child yes. and we talked more about other people than about the child. And then the child was murdered yeah. pretty much immediately. And I was like, well, that was that, I guess. That's
1: how a lot of child kings end up. Don't leave your kingdom to a child, please. Leave it to literally anyone else. They will do a better job.
0: So what is this Antiochus called?
1: Epiphanes. Epiphanes? Like epiphany? It is the same root of the word epiphany, yes.
0: Oh, if only I knew what that meant. Because I have no idea.
1: Epiphany is the manifestation. And epiphanes is he who is manifested. And, subtitle, manifested to be a god. Epiphanes, okay. Yes, so we'll find out how he gets that. Interesting, and interesting. Why and if yes, because he,
0: he was Mithridates.
1: Yes, Mithridates. That, that was his yeah. pre-king name.
0: We can start with a quick
1: recap of what happened in the last few episodes, and then we can uh, jump right in. Yeah. to Antiochus the i I'm ready. Well, so what happened recently? We have that Antiochus the third basically restored the empire but then unfortunately tripped up just at the end due to Rome. Damn you, Rome, as usual.
0: I have not recovered from that. (laughs) It was so sad. It was very sad. Well, get ready for this episode.
1: But anyway... Mm, Great. After Antiochus III was killed, Seleucus IV became king. He sort of stabilized the empire, tried to hold things together, but didn't get to do too much. And then he was poisoned by an advisor, supposedly and succeeded by his child, called Antiochus the Child. And Antiochus the Child ruled for a full month and a bit, during which our Antiochus IV basically marched at the head of a Pergamese army all the way to Antioch and made himself king, adopted Antiochus the Child, and then had him murdered as soon as he had his own child, Antiochus V.
0: Right. That was why, I yes. First yes. he was like, oh, I will be regent, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, I'll be king, but I will make Antiochus the child, like, the heir. And then he had his, yes. own, his own child, and then he was like, well... <laughs> <laughs>
1: ah, one child too many. So, yes. Also, he had a child with his sister, I will remind you.
0: Well, we've been, you know, his sister who has married three brothers... At yes, this point.
1: Antiochus the child was also a child of yeah Laodica and her brother. Yeah. It, it's it's not great. Laodica has a terrible time.
0: Yeah, God.
1: But let's get into this new guy and see what happens. So Antiochus the fourth is born as the son of Antiochus the third, sometime around 215. So thereabouts, based on his age, and he had the name Mithridates, which I thought was weirdly Iranian for. A Seleucid king because they tend to have these intensely Hellenic names but then I looked up his family tree and it turns out that Antiochus IV's grandfather was called Mithridates and was the king of Pontus so okay that makes sense Mm -hmm. the kings of Pontus were descended from Achaemenid nobles the whole naming scheme works out so good so little Antiochus grows up in the royal court as the son of Antiochus the Great things are going wonderful But then there comes the Battle of Magnesia when our Antiochus is about 18 years old and his father is defeated by the Romans and the Romans decide, we want one of your children as a hostage, this one will do, we'll keep the youngest one, thank you very much. And so Antiochus is 18 years old, bright and young, and shipped off to Rome to live his life as a hostage. Hooray. Yeah, then he spends about 13 years in Rome, where we don't really know much about what was going on, you know, we don't know much about his life there, but it seems that he was probably treated quite well and made contact with a lot of the local nobility in Rome, important senators, different dignitaries from around the Mediterranean, so seems to have had a comfortable enough life without too much stress. Except that, you know, he could have been killed in case Anybody in the Seleucid Empire stepped out of line, but, well, you know. He was a hostage, like, in a way. Yeah, but it was a nice hostage. Leverage.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, then they exchanged him from Demetrius, right?
1: Exactly. So, yeah, in 176, 13 years after he first arrived in Rome, he is replaced with his nephew Demetrius, who is the son of Seleucus IV, and elder brother of Antiochus the Child. Yeah. And the IV is free to go where he likes, and he decides to just stay in Athens for a while and chill out there. Because, <laughs> well, you, you know, he could go to the Empire, but that sounds like work, so let's just stay in Athens. It's a nice enough place. Sounds good. But then a year later, he receives a letter. It says, Seleucus IV has died slash was poisoned, oh, whoops! and now a baby is in charge of the Empire, and you are the only adult Seleucid left. What are you gonna do? Well, he decides that he would very much like to have the throne, so he makes some preparations. He
0: didn't really want more work, but if this opportunity pops up, yeah, Yeah, if he can become king, well, he could delegate. That'll be fine.
1: So what he does is he makes an alliance with the King of Pergamon, who was looking for a friendly Seleucid King to make sure his kingdom was secure. And so Antiochus has a Pergamese army with some mercenaries, and he heads over to Antioch, where he besieges the city, but they immediately give up the regent, and lo and behold, Antiochus enters the great city of Antioch, makes himself king, and deposes the young baby. In the meantime, he marries his sister Laodice, because, sure,
0: why not? Because that's how we roll here. Uh... (laughs) Yup.
1: Oh, and also he... Executes the minister Heliodorus, who was the previous regent and accused of poisoning. Ah,
0: right. I remember that. Ah, Heliodorus.
1: Yeah, Yeah, Heliodorus, who was also chased away by angels from Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. He is fun. We have good times here. What happens now that Antiochus IV is king? Well, the first five years are pretty uneventful. He's basically just in Antioch, administering the empire without anything fancy happening. And what happens at the end of these five years is that he has a child with his sister called Antiochus, because everyone's called Antiochus Uh, now. Yeah, because we don't want
0: to make it easy for historians, you know.
1: No, too easy. So this is Antiochus V, and Antiochus IV, our protagonist, decides that, well, baby Antiochus needs to disappear, so we don't have as many people named Antiochus in the same room. (laughs) So he has the child killed. Well,
0: whose fault is that?
1: <laughs> it's everyone's fault. Everybody has failed in the naming department. Also, in these first years, maybe due to Antiochus' upbringing in Rome, the Senate sends a delegation to Antioch to talk to the new king and see okay, what's it going to be like? Is he going to be friendly to us, unfriendly? What's going And it seems like they're pretty happy with how things are going. They have a conversation, everything goes well, Antiochus sends his own messenger to rome what do you think the messenger was called
0: uh roger
1: (laughs) okay cool roger
0: you know know, that it's a long line of messengers (laughs) i don't know why you're asking me this as if we didn't know already it's the only messenger
1: if uh, has ever lived yes
0: well you know there are some jobs that require you to have a dynasty and a legacy one of them is monarch one of them is messenger yeah sounds fair Unless Roger is only Roman messengers. Yes. Hmm. Do we have a different name? Hmm. We need to find the opposing force to the Roger Empire.
1: (laughs) Yes. Somebody who is constantly embattled with Roger from the beginning to the end.
0: How about Jessica?
1: I like Jessica.
0: Jessica. Okay, good.
1: Cool. Jessica. So Jessica heads over to the Senate (laughs) and presents a big honking pile of cash from Antiochus Uh and a piece of paper saying, hey, can we be friends? I don't want to fight you, please. I have other things to deal with. Mm -hmm. Is it okay if we reinstate the treaty that we had under Antiochus III? And the Senate says, okay, sounds fair enough. We don't want to mess other things too much. We are planning a war on Macedon, so we probably just want to make sure we're reasonably at peace so that works well nice but we need to go to another land mainly known for its inbreeding oh the ptolemaic empire jolly <laughs> love that <laughs> because there has been a lot of chaos there recently in egypt the new pharaoh ptolemy the sixth has been recently enthroned after a long regency and as diplomacy would Suggest Antiochus sends an emissary to sort of give his thanks and say, Congratulations on becoming king. Good job. Nice. La-de-da. The problem is that while the courtier was very noble, so a compliment, that's a good sign, this guy had been the governor of Palestine, which is a territory that the Ptolemies claim as part of their empire. So it's not a great move. It's sort of unclear if Antiochus means this as an insult of saying, ha ha, we have Palestine and you don't, na 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 na. Or if he just didn't think about it and said, oh no, this is a noble guy, I'm giving him a compliment. Who knows? It's kind of sketchy, and in Egypt, people start to mumble that they'd like to have Palestine back, and well, if the Romans managed to defeat the Seleucids, why can't they? So plans are being drawn up, we see how it goes. But now we come to the bit that you may have heard of, which is Antiochus going south into the new province of Judea, Mm -hmm. where he comes into contact with the local Jewish population. So how were things going there? Well, before under the Ptolemies, the Jewish people were basically left to do whatever because the Ptolemies didn't care about them, they didn't care about the Ptolemies, as long as the taxes arrive on time, whatever, you're never going to be in the administration, who cares? But under the Seleucids, under the new management, as happens in the rest of the empire, there is an encouragement to Hellenize. There's right. an encouragement to, you know, become more Greek, and then if you are a certain level of Greek, cool, you can enter the administration, you can rise through the ranks, you can become as important as oh, you like.
0: how the turns tables. How now the Seleucid yes. empire is like, Greek? Yeah. We want to do that. (laughs) What? Pretty much. Mm. How did we get here? Damn it, Mithridates. Yeah, you know. Being in (laughs) Athens for so long. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but, you know.
0: Is it because of Antiochus IV? Is it because of Mithridates? It's
1: just in general because the Seleucids were very Hellenistic. I mean, yeah, they came from, like, Macedonia adjacent. Yeah, they're Macedonian descendants, so. The general policy for their administration is that You can keep your local customs, but if you want to enter into the government and self-rule, which is nice for regionalism, but then you need to be able to have a certain level of Hellenization whereby the royal court that is fully Hellenic can interface with you and you can interface with the local population. Mm -hmm. So that's nice, but causes a bit of a problem in Judea especially, because we have three different parties forming. There's one party, which is the Hellenizers, where they say, hey listen, the new boss wants us to be more Hellenic, so why don't we just change our customs a little bit so that we can uh, work better in this new government, work better in this new society, and ensure that everything is fine. Counteracting them are the Zealots, which are entirely opposed to this idea. The Zealots think what do you mean we need to try and become more Hellenistic? These people are ruling over us, and we have like a whole holy book with all this special instructions on what we have to do. It's all written there explicitly, God told us, what, what do, do you mean we need to be more <laughs> Greek? <laughs> so that's the second party. Party number three is, I honestly don't care, just please don't burn my farm, I need to feed my children, do whatever guys. Which is an understandable position. So Antiochus marches through and arrives at Jerusalem in the middle of all this argument. He finds out that there is basically a competition on who should be high priest, because one of the zealots is the high priest right now and is refusing to change. But when Antiochus passes through, he gets a petition from the Hellenizers, who send him a letter and say, hey, listen, the current high priest is really against you. You should probably replace him and put someone else... In place to govern Judea better. Okay, fair enough. Antiochus thinks, how about this guy that's in the middle party? He'll make a good high priest. That seems to work for like two days. <laughs> Great. Until the Hellenizers send a new letter saying, no, 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 we actually meant that you should make one of us the high priest. Sorry oh. if we were unclear before. <laughs> and Antiochus thinks, okay, so you want to be assimilated. You sure? Okay, fine, sure, I'll put a Hellenizing High Priest, that works too. You guys do whatever. And as you can imagine, nobody is happy with this because it's all a mess. <laughs> nobody liked that. <laughs> yes, nobody likes this except the Hellenizers, but frankly, they're not powerful enough to hold on to this. And also, there's a wonderful line from First Maccabees, Which talks about these Hellenizers. And, Cyril, see if you can interpret what they mean because I have no idea. Okay. Because one Maccabees says that the Hellenizers made foreskins for themselves to be more Hellenistic. How does that work? I'm sorry. Are they little hats? (laughs) I don't know.
0: (laughs) Oh my god. Did they, like, nick them? Like,. I don't know. <laughs> Do they have, like, different just colors? Th- just, or, like... <laughs> it's just a throwaway
1: line. Do they have radical genetic therapy? I don't know. It's a thing
0: they, that like, is, is it made of, like, animal skins? Or is it just, like, more like a, a, a <laughs> fabric that you wear? Like, is it fashion? I, I I don't
1: know. I feel like, yes, there's different colors. There's a runway. It's, it's great. It's fun what times. What is going on? But, yeah, that's... Please write it and tell us what, what, what in God's name is this meant to mean. <laughs> so Antiochus leaves Jerusalem, heads towards the Egyptian border, and a couple of weeks after he leaves, the zealots overthrow the Hellenizing high priest and replace their original high priest on the throne, I guess you would call it. So there is now a state of semi-civil war in Judea, and we have to deal with all of this. But Antiochus has no time to deal with all of this. He has more pressing issues because in 170, at the Ptolemaic court, somebody had the bright idea of attacking the Seleucid Empire to retake Palestine. So we can just make sure that everything is there. Hooray. Yeah. But good news is that they weren't very secretive about it. And Antiochus knew with like a serious advance that this invasion was going to happen. So he managed to quickly rush all his troops to the border before the Ptolemies could even try anything. Then at the border, we have that there is a quick battle where Antiochus defeated the Ptolemaic army and managed to capture Pelusium, which was an important port city, which is essentially the entrance to all of Egypt. If you have Pelusium, you can just go in and out of Egypt without any trouble. So that's nice, but what is Antiochus to do now? Because his father, Antiochus the Great, Decide to stop invading Egypt. Antiochus IV has now the opportunity to just flood in and take everything he wants. What do you think he does? Does he follow his father's example, or does he just march in and see what he can take?
0: I don't know him well enough to chime in here, but... um, (laughs) He murdered a child. (laughs)
1: That's what you know so
0: far. (laughs) I guess he will just go marching and... uh... You know, by force.
1: Yes, he does do this. He decides, you know what? I'm going to be the first Seleucid king in Egypt since Seleucus I. I'm going to just march in and take everything I can. So he crosses past Pelusium, invades the delta of the Nile, captures the old capital of Memphis, and begins to set his eyes on Alexandria. He is going to march on it and take it when his large army arrives and surrounds Alexandria, he sends Jessica off to speak to Ptolemy VI and say, hey, that maybe there should be some sort of deal so that Ptolemy doesn't end up dethroned and dead and Antiochus remains happy with what he's gained. Now, it looks like some sort of deal is organized, but we're not sure what the details are. The only thing that is certain is that we have And now a three-way civil war in Egypt between Ptolemy VI, his sister-wife Cleopatra II, and his brother Ptolemy VIII, who now also married Cleopatra. It's messy. Hmm. So everything is slightly on fire. Again. Yep. And it's at this point when Egypt is burning that Antiochus gets news of the regime change in Jerusalem and the high priest being overthrown. So that's not great. Antiochus sort of sighs and heads back towards the east, mostly because he's concerned that this change in regime is being sponsored by the Ptolemies. He is suspecting that the Zealots are being sponsored by the Ptolemies to oppose the Seleucid regime in the area. Now, we have no evidence of this, but, you know, it's not unrealistic to expect that the Ptolemies Mm -hmm. would finance somebody to stab them in the back, so there we are. So... Antiochus sends a small army to take Jerusalem, they loot the temple, and they reinstate their own high priest. Hooray! We've desecrated a temple.
0: Yay, we love that.
1: Good times. Always
0: goes well. Yeah.
1: So, perfect! Job done! Antiochus foresees no repercussions to this. Let's go look at the Ptolemies and how that's been going. He looks at the Ptolemies and sees that, okay, no, they're actually working together now. They've somehow figured out a deal. And They're now trying to take back their lands. That's annoying. Fine. Antiochus, let's go kick some more butt. So Antiochus sends quickly a fleet to take the only non-Egyptian territory that the Ptolemies still have, the island of Cyprus, which was an important naval base. And fortunately, Cyprus surrenders immediately. Antiochus has it. Great. Then, Antiochus goes with his army back to Memphis, where he didn't meet any resistance. And he issued coins in Memphis, displaying Mm -hmm. his victory, and also obtained the submission of all of Upper Egypt, which had recently revolted, had a native revolt, and now they're saying, yep, we're with you. Oh, damn. And it seems that he might have officially been crowned as pharaoh of all of Egypt, which, it's not 100% certain, but it's a good story, so shut up. (laughs) We're going with it. Yes, we're going with he is a pharaoh now. Great. Don't worry about it. Yeah. There in Memphis he receives a request for peace from the Ptolemies and in this request for peace he demands Cyprus because it's a nice naval base and he also demands Pelusium, which was this entry to Egypt. So what essentially means is that if he has Cyprus and Pelusium he can just invade Egypt at will and Egypt becomes de facto a vassal kingdom of his. So He can just invade whenever he wants. They have to do what he says or they're screwed. But unfortunately, the Ptolemies know that these terms mean that they basically stop being independent, so they just refuse and they decide, okay, fine, we'll keep going with the war. So Antiochus takes his army from Memphis, takes his shiny new title, Pharaoh, and decides to conquer Alexandria with all of this. So he circles around Alexandria, besieges the city, and sits in for a bit of a wait to see when they'll surrender. And it's at this point that he stops at a town called Eleusis. There, you know, he waits for the outcome of the siege.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one day, what's that on the horizon? There's a ship. Okay, that's a bit concerning. It might be reinforcements. Tigus looks around. He tries to see if he recognizes the ship. Okay, seems unfamiliar, but let's see how many more appear and how much we should be worried. Then he waits a while more. No, looks like it's just one ship. Just a single ship. That's weird. Don't they know there's a siege on? We've had a blockade and everything. What are they doing? <laughs> then it gets closer and he sees, oh, hmm. Okay, they're flying a Roman banner. What do they want? Oh, crap. I didn't give my firstborn son to the Romans. Are they here to ask for my firstborn son?
0: Oh, yeah. We did this like way before. Yeah. That pact with the Roman devil. Exactly. But okay, so this tiny Roman ship
1: arrives in Doxatelosus, and out comes a little old man. Oh. This little old man is a senator called Papilius Lanus, And actually, this is great news, because Antiochus knew Lanus from the time he was a hostage in Rome. Uh-huh. So okay, that's nice. Are they here to congratulate me on the thing? Is it, just, is it going to be like an extra treaty of friendship and alliance? What do they want? Do, do they want to split up Egypt? What's going on here? Yeah. And so Antiochus goes over to Papilius and goes in to shake his hand and welcome him, but Papilius stops him. Oh. He says, No, Antiochus, I'm sorry. Too slow. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Maybe that's the unwritten version. <laughs> Unfortunately, Polybius doesn't give us that, but he does tell us that Lena says, No no no, I'm sorry, Antiochus, but I can't shake your hand until I know we can be friends. That's fair. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Why shouldn't we be friends, Laenus? And he hands Antiochus a scroll from the Senate and people of Rome. Uh. In the scroll, it says, Antiochus should abandon all of his conquests in Ptolemaic lands and make peace with Ptolemy for no gain. If he does not, this will be a declaration of war on the Roman Republic.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So that's not great. (laughs) I feel like their definition of friendship is questionable. (laughs) Yeah, these are the Romans we're talking about. They take our
1: firstborn sons and this is their friendship. It's not great. Okay, so Antiochus is slightly shocked at this news and he thinks, okay, this is a difficult choice. Because I don't want to do that, you know. I'm going to go talk with my council a moment and see if we can come to some sort of agreement. And then I'll give you your answer, Papilius. You can just, you know, enjoy yourself in the camp and then I'll, I'll be right back. It's at this point that Papilius Lenus does the most Roman thing ever done. Oh. Yes. He takes a stick and draws a circle around the great king Antiochus IV, son of Antiochus the Great. How dare you? And says, no, no, no. No consulting the council. If you leave the circle without giving me an answer, we're at war. What the...
0: (laughs) (laughs) How dare he? Excuse me? Exactly. Who are you to do that to the king?
1: (laughs) So this is what is known as the day of Eleusis. Because it's it's a very
0: scene. (sighs) I swear. (laughs) I do not have the patience for these Romans. I do not. So... What do you think Antiochus
1: does? Does he give in or does he try to fight for it?
0: Wait, I hear, like Antiochus was pro-Rome-ish, yeah, right? Yeah, he was! Like, so <laughs> this really came to bite him in the, in the rear.
1: Yeah, because apparently Ptolemy had sent a little letter off to Rome. Yeah. And, well, the Romans don't really want the
0: Seleucid Empire to own the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah I guess. I guess he gives in? I don't know I would go I just like this is so disrespectful i just go to war. <laughs> <laughs> yes in your version you
1: go to war with the Romans and decide to stab them.
0: I don't know if that would be wise I don't know if we could make it because last time they kicked us but you know <laughs> how dare they. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah basically <laughs> that is the good vibe. But, well, as you imagined, Antiochus, in this circle in the sand... Contemplates his life
0: choices.
1: (laughs) Just sighs and says, okay, fine. You win. And then Poppelius says, oh, shakes his hand and says, oh, good, I'm so glad we're friends. Like, you little piece of... Although I love that Diodorus Siculus Mm. adds that Antiochus gave in, and I quote... Awed by the majesty sure. and might of
0: Rome. Which, come on. By drawing a circle in the sand and being like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. If you leave, I'm just going to declare war on you. Yeah. And you're like, seriously, much. this is how we're making important decisions right now? Like,
1: <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, why did he actually
0: give in? Yeah, I'm impressed that, like, we know about this. Because I would be so mortified that I did this. That I wouldn't, get, I wouldn't let any historian know. I mean, we know about it because the Romans are telling us. <laughs> yeah, I this is kill the Romans every being witness. like, look at us.
1: <laughs> yes. It's like that Korean king who just fell off his horse and said, nobody tell the historian, and the historian wrote it down in his history. <laughs> it's good stuff.
0: Yes. But like, come on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so essentially, why is this happening? Well, first of all, there are some modern historians who propose that actually this was all decided beforehand, but I seriously doubt this. No. Because according to their point of view, they're saying, oh, well, Antiochus knew that he couldn't really hold Egypt, so it was better to just make a nice little theater scene where, oh, the Romans look like the bad guys, and oh, it's not that he didn't take Egypt because he can't, he didn't take it just because, oh, it's the evil Romans doing this. I, bro.
0: Which I can see your point, but how is this less pathetic?
1: Yeah, like how does
0: this solve anything?
1: Yeah, this is just so humiliating that you can't just you You know you just had this war for nothing and you've been immensely humiliated. I don't see this being something you've agreed on beforehand. But yeah, the reason is that probably it's kind of a mess for Antiochus to deal with a war against Egypt and Rome at the same time. Because, sure, he took some of Egypt, but then there's a whole native population he has to deal with. So how does he deal with the local population of Egypt? Are they going to welcome him? Are they not? When his army leaves, how are the Romans going to attack? How is all that going to work out? Yeah. And also, if you remember, the Romans have Demetrius as a hostage. We did that. And if we're going according to the direct line of succession... Demetrius is more legitimate than Antiochus IV as yep. king. So what the Romans could do is just release Demetrius with uh, a bunch of money and the an wild,
0: be, yeah. be free into the wild. <laughs> just frolic around.
1: And if Demetrius is there, then Antiochus would have to deal with a civil war, a war with Egypt, a war with Rome, all at the same time. So rather than doing all that and risk losing his entire throne... He decides, fine, it's immensely humiliating, but sure, I guess it's better than being executed by my nephew, <sighs> I guess. So it's still very humiliating and it's sort of the epitome of this period of Roman history where they consider themselves the rulers of the Mediterranean and they just tell kings what to do in this embarrassing way. Like Papilius Lenus isn't even a consul or anything. He's just some guy
0: That the Senate sent,
1: because why not?
0: Just some dude.
1: So, after this pleasant meeting, Mm -hmm. Antiochus is forced to leave Egypt and march back, taking away all his garrisons, renouncing his title as pharaoh, and going home. But great news! We get to pass through Jerusalem and see how everything is going. Oh, I'm sure it's going great. So the Hellenizing high priest who is now currently in charge in Jerusalem, asks Antiochus, Hey, we've been dealing with some zealot rebels. What do you think if we convert our great temple into a temple to Zeus? You know, it's a thing with syncretism in Hellenistic places. You know, they have Zeus Amon in Egypt. Zeus is a sky father. Our God is sort of a sky father. We can just make it a temple of Zeus Yahweh. How does that sound, Antiochus? And Antiochus says, uh, okay, sure. I mean, I guess. I, I, I've, I was going to settle some people from Syria here anyway to secure my control. I guess this gives them a place to worship. Nice. Are you sure your people aren't going to be mad about it? No, no, no. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about a thing. It's at this point that a man called Judah Maccabee, who is sort of ah, the chief of the zealots quite rightly, thinks, what do you mean you want to worship Zeus in our temple? We have like a whole 10-step program. Three (laughs) of the 10 steps are about which god we worship. Was that unclear? What are you doing?
0: (laughs) That is so true. I love it. Just like, listen, listen, listen. We don't do none of the nonsense of like, I will share gods. Have you not been paying attention? Our religion is very specific about this thing. We have a whole story about
1: Moses and everything. God curses people terribly when they worship other gods. What are you doing? <laughs> you absolute madman. Why are you the high priest? And so Judah Maccabee and his zealot friends decide to start a whole guerrilla campaign to try and retake Jerusalem and fight off the invaders. And this is where the rebellion that Hanukkah's about starts.
0: Ah, uh, I see.
1: Yes. And you know who loses from all of this? The people who lose are the members of the just-please-don't-burn-my-farm party because they're caught in the middle. Because Judah Maccabee will go and burn their farms because, well, they're supplying food to the cities where the Hellenizers are. The Hellenizers will burn the villages because, hmm, they're probably supporting the guerrilla warfare. And if you're just trying to support your family... We're kind of screwed because, I don't know, man.
0: I just want to feed my children. What is wrong with (laughs) you guys?
1: (laughs) Also, seeing this rebellion, Antiochus forbids observation of Jewish law on pain of death, according to the Bible. And it's interesting to note that this isn't across the whole empire. Like, the Jews in Babylon are perfectly fine continuing their observation. Mm. It seems like it's more of a localized thing in Judea specifically. To support his candidate for high priest. So that they can have the whole foreskin hats and whatever they're planning.
0: (laughs) Why would you keep bringing it up? (laughs) Please, release me.
1: (laughs) But now Antiochus returns to Syria. He leaves this problem behind. Some underling can deal with it. It's not important enough for him to care. I see. So he arrives off to Antioch and he decides... Well, he grew up in Rome. How do Romans celebrate victories, Serial? Oh, they have triumphs. Yes, and Antiochus would very much like his own triumph. Of course
0: he would. He wants to be Roman so bad. He wants to be Roman so bad. this this... You don't know the half of it. You'll see now what his triumph is like. This traitor. How (laughs) dare he.
1: So, in this great triumph, he dresses up like a Roman. He has elections for consul, which he wins. For some reasons. Because, you know. He arms and commands soldiers to act like Roman soldiers and has them parade across the streets of Antioch. And then he assumes the epithet of Epiphanes, the manifest Ah, god, after his great victory. What victory? Are you delusional?
0: Uh. What is going on?
1: (laughs) I guess he's trying to spin it as, oh, yeah, we left because we were winning so hard. We didn't want the Ptolemies to feel bad for themselves. So, you know, we really won. I mean, I have coins that say I'm Pharaoh, but, you know, we just left it because we felt bad humiliating them that much. (laughs) Sure. Yeah,
0: we're going to go with that. Definitely the truth. A thousand percent.
1: Yeah, although the Epiphanes nickname would eventually be deformed by his enemies into Epimanes. Can you guess what that means, Serial? Mm, no. The Manes is the same one from Maniac. So hey. it is basically Antiochus the Madman.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I have called him delusional just now. So I, Yeah. So I can see it. Everybody
1: else agrees. Also, just for some good old Roman entertainment, he decides to organize gladiatorial games in the city. So he's trying to spend as much as possible for all of this to try and show that even though he was politically outmaneuvered by the Romans, he is still militarily and economically just as powerful as anyone else. Sure, sure. So at least the people in the capital can see this as a victory, even though the news is a bit weird. But, yeah. So, you notice that Antiochus is acting a little bit strange, and, well, we have these stories. Oh. <laughs> because some hypotheses are that maybe he just sort of had a nervous breakdown after the whole circle drawn <laughs> around him uh, incident. I, I do not blame him, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> just like, <laughs> <laughs> So, that might be the case. Otherwise, he maybe was just a little bit weird, and he had enemies writing his histories, so that sort of messed up but Diodorus tells us that Antiochus would often slip out of the palace with a few friends at night and travel around the city unknown, incognito. Mm. Which is very Nero of him. Also, apparently he enjoyed just showing up at random parties in disguise and then just suddenly revealing himself to freak out the guests who just had the king appear in the middle of their random party. Mm -hmm. Which sounds like a great fun prank. But also... Don't you have a kingdom to run, my dude? A nice thing is that he took interest in metallurgy. He had hobbies, and he enjoyed discussing technical matters with goldsmiths and silversmiths in their shops. He'd just go up to a shop and say, Oh, yeah, but what exactly are you doing to the forge? like, ah, what heat are you using? What soldering method? And that seemed to be very peaceful. And it also seems like he was uh, a serious micromanager, because during the organization of his triumph, he just rolled around on a sad old horse micromanaging everybody's work like he'd stop saying like oh no actually the banners they should be a bit more flappy make them a little bit longer it's like oh no actually this armor isn't exactly correct ah, oh, no i want the specific gladiator so mm-hmm. the worst boss but you know also he apparently attended drinking parties and instead of just being like the king still in a certain place having others approach him he just went around to the different groups in the party to chat with them mm-hmm Which Diodorus makes it sound very scandalous, but he just seems kind of nice, you know, seems like he just is more down to earth. And also he spent like 13 years in Rome, not being raised as a prince. It makes sense that he would be a little bit less formal than somebody who had been raised Mm -hmm. since birth to be king. And yeah, then we get some slightly more Nero-y or Caligula-y or (laughs) Commodus-y or (laughs) Eleganism. Yeah, you know, the fun ones.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The completely not unhinged, very calm and collected bunch. Yes.
1: Apparently, again, according to Diodorus, and I'm not sure I believe this, he once made an entrance into a party carried by a bunch of mimes. Uh huh. And then was revealed to be stark naked underneath his coverings and proceeded to perform obscene dances that made everybody quickly leave out of embarrassment. <laughs> Oh, God. (laughs) So that's a thing. Also, Polybius tells us a story of when Antiochus went to the baths with the common people. And apparently in the baths, Antiochus, since he was rich, he's the king, he tended to be covered in expensive ointments and perfumes once he was done with the bathing, when he was being massaged and all that. And at that point, one of the common people around said, Oh, how lucky kings are that they can smell so sweet. How fortunate you are, your majesty. So apparently the next day, Antiochus brought a huge jar of the most precious perfume he could find and poured it all over this guy's head so that everybody in the baths suddenly jumped up and rolled around on the floor around this guy to cover themselves in the perfume, causing great amusement to everyone involved. Also, Polybius adds that he would generally just give people random gifts of money dates and sometimes gazelles knuckle bones for reasons i assume yeah. maybe to use this dice i don't know it's why gazelles though <laughs> so now it's probable that most of this is roman exaggeration because it fits the typical idea of the corrupt eastern king and oh no they're scary because they're foreign and it's kind of weird also because antiochus would have grown up in rome and if he learned anything, he learned it from them. And so these are probably just exaggerations from Antiochus being just more down-to-earth since he grew up in Rome and without an especially privileged position, and was just more accustomed to going to talk to people as normal. But yeah, so while all this triumph is going on, it seems like in Judea the war is turning towards the rebels' side. They defeat the local governor a couple of times, but Antiochus is busy. He has other things to do. Mm. Let's go. So Antiochus begins to prepare an expedition to the east, because if you remember, after Antiochus the Great died, the east was sort of weird and unstable, and a lot of the treaties didn't apply anymore, so it was breaking away, as it did somehow. Mm. And so Antiochus decides to prepare some sort of expedition to deal with all these situations. Unfortunately, due to the sources, we don't really know how extensive his preparations were and what the main goal was. It's possible that he was just trying to deal with the Parthians who had a new king called Mithridates I, and who was making some trouble in the east and was looking a little bit threatening, so maybe Antiochus wanted to nip that in the bud before anything unfortunate happened. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we're not sure about the size, but we know that Antiochus prepares an army and gets ready to march to the east. And as is traditional, since he's at least somewhat clever, he made his son, Antiochus V, co-king. And left him in Antioch in case anything were to happen. So, good news. But since Antiochus V is still very young, he was left under the control of a regent called Lysias, which you might want to remember. Okay. Who is basically the one officially running the western part of the Empire while Antiochus is off on an expedition. Mm Mm-hmm. So, what happened? Antiochus first starts off and heads to Armenia and reconquers it. Basically makes its local king a vassal. Since Armenia had broken away after Antiochus III's reign, he makes sure that at least they're paying some sort of tribute. So, nice. Later on, he passes through Babylon, and he refounds a few cities in Iran, and renames Ekbatana as Epiphania after himself. But don't worry, the name won't stick. Mm-hmm. Everybody will continue calling it Ekbatana because we've been here for a thousand years. What are you doing? Then, marching further east, Antiochus seems to have attacked some local Persian ruler in Persia proper and defeated them, established some better local control over the region, making sure that they're subjects as you'd expect. Then he arrived to Elamis, where his father had died, and he decided to imitate him by taking the treasure from the local temple. But, fortunately, unlike his father, once our Antiochus saw that an angry mob was forming around the temple, seeing, wait, why are you taking the stuff from our temple? Our Antiochus decided that maybe he was gonna back away and not do this, because he'd oh. really rather not Smart. get murdered in the same way as his father.
0: Smart. So we've learned
1: one thing, at least.
0: We learned from our mistakes. I am so impressed.
1: Good stuff here.
0: From some at mistakes. At least one
1: thing was learned. Yeah. Eh based on the battles with the persians it does look like persia proper is sort of slipping out of seleucid control like it doesn't have a big powerful king like bactria and parthia further in the east but it seems to be independent minded enough that battles were necessary Mm -hmm. but otherwise it looks like the empire was holding together well enough because looks like antiochus did what he could to found new cities mostly in syria and palestine both as a defense in case of a Ptolemaic counterattack and also to ensure the Hellenization of the local population. We've been there in Judea when everybody was arguing because there were new colonists. Well, these are the new colonists. Also, unlike the earlier Seleucids, it looks like Arantagas isn't really making new cities. It looks like he's just renaming old cities and reorganizing them and bringing in new people from abroad okay, just yeah. to restructure them and make sure they work well. Also, he's pretty good in the administration in that he makes these new cities pay him for the privilege of printing smaller copper and bronze coins Mm -hmm. so he can make a profit from this. And this also helps, you know, day-to-day trade where you don't have to go around with a massive banknote to buy a loaf of bread. You actually have small enough denominations that you can buy everyday things. And this is pretty nice. Although it looks like this only happened in the West, where a lot of the mints were in the East it looked like either things were a bit too unstable or they didn't really need such small denominations and they were fine with the old system. (laughs) Whatever it was, mostly in the West. Another thing that was only in the West is that he's the first Seleucid king to be called a god on his coins. Oh right. But only on these smaller coins. So while Antiochus the Second was called a god, but in like this one very specific city,
0: in Anatolia.
1: I remember that. Antiochus the Fourth is called a god everywhere (laughs) he's like hello i am a god thank you very much so the state of the empire is relatively stable although you know it has been healthier but it's doing better than it was before somewhat but how will it fare after antiochus's eastern expedition well let's see because when antiochus heads east he starts to get a little bit sick oh no he gets more sick
0: yeah we know how this goes.
1: And unfortunately for him, he eventually becomes so sick that he calls to his bedside one of the commanders of the army on his expedition, a man called Philip, who you will like to mark down. Oh. And Antiochus gives Philip his ring. We don't know if there are any words with it, but he definitely assigns Philip his ring. Hmm. And then shortly after, Antiochus dies. Now, can you think of a problem with having a regent in Antioch with King Antiochus V, and Philip being given the ring of the king on his deathbed, in charge of an army?
0: I can see the gladiator problem. <laughs> <laughs> that could be it. Yes, it's exactly you know, exactly that. <laughs> except yes, fair. He needs. He needs
1: to make the Seleucid Empire a republic again. That's yeah. The
0: thing. regent is not Commodus. <laughs> But essentially, you have someone who can claim, oh, I've been chosen to be the heir. Ah, pretty much. Not necessarily, you know, properly on paper, but when you have an army, mm, who cares? <laughs> yeah, you can do what you want. Your army is your right to rule. Exactly.
1: So we'll see next episode how that works out and how we have a new child king, the V. Oh. He's like 10, 12 or something. He's slightly older than Antiochus the Child, his half-brother. But we'll see how that works out next time. Oh, damn. Oh, and also, just so you know, we have a great bit of almost certainly not true detail from 2 Maccabees, Mm. where the Jewish people are writing again about Antiochus' death. Oh, great. Because they enjoy the morbid details right now.
0: Eh, who wouldn't?
1: Yeah, according to them, Antiochus was struck with a bowel disease as soon as he heard that the Jews had won a great victory.
0: <laughs> he sh- himself to death. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much.
1: But no, it gets worse. Because oh it, in this case of bowel discomfort, he <laughs> orders his chariot to speed off to Jerusalem to try and defeat them. But once he hears this, he falls off. And breaks all of his
0: bones, <laughs> falling off the back of the chariot. All 206. Oh my yes, goodness! even
1: mini pinky bones. Everything is broken. Then, in his broken state, his body starts to be swarmed by maggots, and his flesh begins to rot away. All while he is still living. And then, finally, Antiochus accepts to make a peace with the Jewish people, and that is when God finally allows him to die. <laughs> Unbelievable. The end. So there we go. That is the great life and gruesome potential death of Antiochus Fourth. Huh. What are your thoughts, Ariel? Boy, sure lots happened.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. There's a lot of business going on. A lot of nice scenes that I enjoy. But yeah, it's definitely been an event.
0: Oh, that was fun. Damn. Yeah.
1: So, are you ready to rate this man Yeah. and see how he does? I have high hopes for his ratings. We'll see how they go. Okay, so our first category is Final Moments. How good was his death? Either dying of disease and handing over a ring to his general, or having a disease, falling off a chariot, breaking all his bones, being swarmed by maggots, flesh rotting off, and then being
0: finally allowed to die by God. I mean that is very epic. I do not <laughs> think that's what happened, but that is very epic. Almost certainly not, but it's a vengeful god. It's a good
1: story. Um, this is Old Testament God, you see. Yeah, it still hasn't gone through the whole peace and love phase. <laughs> that's true. It's the whole fire and brimstone. I will raise your cities to the ground. Yeah, genocide the people who threaten me.
0: Truly, <laughs> I recently rewatched Prince of Egypt, which you know was a good way <laughs> to the same one, yeah. <laughs> dust off the old uh, Moses story and boy boy is that questionable um <laughs> God let's not mess around God will mess you up yep yep it's like you have to stop mistreating and enslaving my people okay so what would you do if I don't oh I will do the same thing too. I will just genocide your people instead ah I see <laughs> Ah, Yeah, that's fine. An eye Ah, for an
1: eye. Thank you. Message received.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Intense. So yeah,
1: (laughs) we get a bit of divine retribution. Hooray. (laughs) So how highly do you rate this divine retribution slash mundane disease, maybe malaria? Yeah. Who knows?
0: Mundane disease is like, eh, not that cool. But like, it deserves some points for the extra yeah i also like the, the, the chaos
1: element of giving the ring on yeah, your deathbed yeah, yeah. to somebody entirely unrelated <laughs> like you had a succession plan in well, order was, you should have just i wonder not. if that happened or if the guy just took it it could have not because like why, why would you do that i mean you know maybe you're feverish you're like wait did i actually appoint a regent i better appoint a regent in case something goes wrong oh maybe it could be who knows It might just be Philip saying, oh, no, no, the king totally gave me his ring. I didn't take it off his corpse. (laughs) The ring still has the the finger hanging on it. (laughs) (laughs) Pay no attention to the finger attached to the ring. Uh, Yeah, so I'm impressed. I like it. I like that there's the story. I like that there's the chaos. I'm aiming for a six. That's my starting point. Let me see if I want to shift up or down. What are you thinking, Serial?
0: Yeah...
1: Let me see. Who did I give a six to? Just a comparison. Darius III or Artaxerxes III, which are also murderies. Mm, I think this is worth a six. I like the Maccabees story of the horrible, horrible death. Like who is it? Galerius who also dies that way? But anyway, so yeah, I'm sticking with six. How about you, Sario? Yeah, no, actually, I think a six is pretty good. Nice. So with a six and a six, we get a six out of ten for final moments. Next category is battle hardness. How good was he at wars and fighting? He was pretty good. Like, he wasn't terrible. Okay, so let's go through his resume. So he started by taking the throne with a Pergamene army, marching on Antioch. He didn't really do any fighting. The army was just big enough that Antioch surrendered, so... Yeah. eh. But that's also good
0: strategy, you know? Yeah,
1: fair enough. He then had his whole war with Egypt, which he won brilliantly. Like, militarily, he was undefeated. He managed to just... Go through Egypt, take Memphis, take the Delta, defeat Ptolemaic armies, besiege Alexandria. He didn't gain anything from it, but militarily he was winning. I don't know if you want to put down any points for the fact that at the threat of having to fight with Rome, he folded. Don't know Mm -hmm. if that's a thing. And then another part of his career is that after the first time his high priest in Jerusalem was replaced, he sent an army which retook Jerusalem and replaced his guy in charge. So that's one victory, but then some of his generals lost in Judea while he was off in the east, so that's not great. But then he managed to retake Armenia, make Armenia become a subject again. Mm -hmm. He also won a couple of battles in Persia, so that's good. So overall, I think it's a solid career. Solid record, yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering how high to go for it, because it's a solid record without anything incredible like it's yeah fine i'm wondering if to also go with a six here or I'm, i think i'm a six or a five because i think it's good but i don't know how good like xerxes the first got a six cambyses the second got a six antiochus the first got a six at least for me but i don't know if it's a five or six what are your orientation
0: It wasn't bad. Yeah, I feel like a six, like slightly above... Well, I will take a point down for just being a suck-up to Rome. (laughs) That's fair. So a five. Yeah.
1: I'll stick with my six, you know, because I feel like it's... It's okay. They didn't actually fight. We don't know who would have won. I mean, we maybe know who would have won, but who knows? So, yeah, I think six and a five is a fair deal. So six and a five gives us an 11 out of 20 for battle hardness. Next category is scheminess. How good was he at plots and manipulation? Okay, there's something here. He managed to well convince the king of Pergamon to lend him an army to take over the empire. So that's nice. He managed to manipulate his way to becoming king and not just regent and then get rid of the uncomfortable child. Negative scheminess, he got entirely diplomatically outmaneuvered by the Romans, like, in the most egregious and humiliating way possible. And otherwise, schemy. what did he do? Doesn't seem terribly schemy. It seems like it's mostly getting to the throne, which requires some schemes. Once he's on it, he doesn't really bother too much with that sort of thing. So, yeah, I don't know if you want to give maybe, like, a token half-point or something for the whole triumph and the propaganda campaign. Honestly, there yeah, that's kind trying of Trying to make himself look like a victor. This is
0: still schemey, though. Yeah. That's scheminess. Yeah. That's not really... He wasn't very schemy. He actually got humiliated by Rome in that sense. Yeah. And, like, not much happened. Apart from, you know, killing child Antiochus and... Eh. Yeah, I think I think that deserves like one or two points. I'm Putting himself two, on the throne, considering everything right? like, together, it's what I yeah. mean. But like, eh, I don't think he was particularly. Like it's not like huge. He...
1: It's not it's Darius not the Great or anything. No, but you know, I think it's
0: worth some points. I think you I'm
1: know. gonna go with two, which is fair enough. How
0: about you? Yeah, you're sticking with two as well. Yeah, I, there's no reason to go higher than that. So okay, fair. A two feels. Correct, So with a 2 and a 2, he gets
1: a 4 out of 20 for scheminess. Next category is shock factor, which is probably where he'll shine. Because how scandalous was he? Well, he has a lot of things. First of all, he usurps the throne. Well, He marries his sister. He kills his stepson slash nephew. He folds to Rome in the most humiliating way possible. Yeah, what was that? You know, he just accepts to be treated that way, which I understand there's political reasons for it, but also, come on, my man. How? How is this happening? Then, shock factor, he sort of is okay with when the Hellenizing high priest says, can we turn it into a temple to Zeus? He's like, yeah, sure. Sounds fair. (laughs) He forbids the observation of Jewish law in all of Judea to try and help the civil war that's brewing. He does all the weird triumph thing. He dresses up as a Roman. He has elections that he wins. He has gladiatorial games. He has soldiers dressed up as Romans.
0: That's just pitiful.
1: Yeah. Then, well, we have other stories. He's also not one for protocol. He sort of shows up randomly at people's parties. He just goes around and talks with everybody. He apparently entered a party naked and performed obscene dances. That's a thing, apparently. Very normal.
0: You know, typical behavior.
1: Yeah, he goes to the baths and pours perfume on one guy and just everybody rolls around in it. That's a thing he does too. And shocking, he also just gives his ring to a random guy, even though he already had a regent and this is going to cause problems down the line. So I think it's a healthy amount of shock factor. I'm pretty impressed. I'm wondering, uh, I need to count in my head what it is. So I'd say, like, I'd say three points for the killing stepson and marrying sister.
0: I mean, that's not very shocking, though.
1: Others have done the same. I mean, I would have given it more, but I feel like, you know, it's not great. I'm adding the usurpation into that. Then I'd say a couple points for the humiliation at the hands of Rome. Because, come on, I'm going to say three, actually, because it's a big humiliation. Yeah. It's a couple more points for the treatment of the Jewish people, just in general. Mm. And another couple for the triumph, honestly, I think I'm...
0: Yeah, I, that was just, like, shocking There's a lot of good things in here, yeah. I cannot believe. <laughs> <laughs> Traitor.
1: Yeah. So, I think an 8, actually. I'm convinced with my calculation. He's one of the more shocking kings we've had so far. Like, the previous king that was more than 8 shocking was Alexander the Great, of course. Yeah. And then Cambyses. Only got a nine, so I think he's welcome in this club. It's a pretty outrageous dude. So I'm gonna go with an eight. How about you, Serial? I'll go with a seven. That's not okay, fair enough. So with an eight and a seven, we get a 15 out of 20 for shock factor. Next category is Eren Shine. How good was he for the Empire in general and Iran in particular?
0: Not terrible merits and demerits,
1: yeah. So On the upside, he refounded some cities to try and uh, better settle the empire, ensure that it was more homogeneous. So that's nice. He introduced this new monetary policy, which made trade easier at the western of the empire. He stabilized the eastern part by winning a few battles, consolidating a bit of the areas that were breaking away. Persia, in particular, he does bring back into the fold more securely. So that's positive, I'd say, overall. Then come the negatives.
0: <laughs> yeah, then, you know, this, this shit because,
1: happens. yeah, he basically kicks a hornet's nest in Palestine with everybody getting angry at him for different reasons. And, oh, yes, let's worship Zeus in the temple. Oh, yes, what let's was outlaw. That? I just, <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know, man. So that's not great for stability. Also, he messes up the succession at the last moment, so that's not yeah. great like he Listen, had a plan to you know, start with when but, i said eh,
0: before rule number 1 to not mess up the empire appoint a successor yeah i didn't mean like do it <laughs> over and over again and then not clarify that's the that, <laughs> yeah. the wrong way to do it
1: <laughs> bit problematic there isn't it does that and then we have the big one that's staring us in the face is he tries to conquer egypt fails miserably gains nothing from this war wastes all the resources on it and then just looks like Rome's lapdog. Yeah. Because, oh, well, Rome can just send one old man and you have to withdraw your armies and give up all your conquests. And you're not even going to dispute that. You're just going to say, yep, okay, yes, it's fine. Thank you, Rome. May I have another, please? You know, it's, pathetic. it's not great for our image. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's uh those are the main I don't know if anything else stood up particularly to you, but this is uh That's a pretty good summary. Issue. So I think the Empire is worse off. Like, you know, if it weren't for the whole Roman Egypt thing, I would have gone for like a six or a seven. Yeah. But I think it's just so bad. It's just so humiliating and so destructive. Like, cause it's basically showing that. The Seleucids can't have an independent foreign policy anymore. They just need to ask Rome for permission first. And then if Rome says yes, okay, fine. But, like, come on. This is really embarrassing. So, yeah, I think a four, because the empire is worse off. Like, it's not crumbling, but it's worse off in general. Yeah, Which is a shame, because I think that otherwise he would have done a reasonably good job. But this is just too big to ignore. So, I'm going 4-4. Four, four.
0: Yeah, I agree. Actually, I agree with you. 4 as well? Okay,
1: very nice. So, with a 4 and a 4, we get an 8 out of 20 for Aaron Shy. Next category is Face of Faces. How interesting was this man's face? So, Sariel, please choose your favorite scene from our dedicated selection to draw oh. this man. Alright,
0: let me... <laughs> yeah, of course. I was like, oh, what am I going to choose? But I know, of course I know. (laughs) Okay, very good.
1: Okay, so Serial has finished their drawing. So let me pick it up and I'll describe it to you lovely folks. Okay, so let me open it. Yes, of course. Of course. You chose the correct scene. (laughs) Are you kidding? Okay, I love it. Yes, I'm very happy. (laughs) Okay, so listeners, what we have here is... Antiochus in some nice robes, a diadem as usual, you know, fluffy hair. And he is in the middle of a circle, and we see from his back an old Roman man holding up a stick in his hand. And we see Antiochus staring at him with his hands out,
0: so as to say, What? What? (laughs) What? Going to make him do the Italian hand, (laughs) you know? Which would have, like, obviously he's not Italian or Roman, but, like, he wants to be really badly, so maybe it would have been... (laughs) But I think this conveys it well enough. Yes.
1: There is just a dot, dot, dot over his head, just to represent how he feels about the whole ordeal. Which, fair enough. So, very good. I love this. Extremely strong vibes. But now let me show
0: you what he looks like, and we have a bust. Here is the man. What do you think oh, of Oh, nice. Ah, uh, missing a nose. Very typical. Yeah, tragic. Interesting face. We're going back to the like wide, very square, rectangular kind of face with like a wide jaw. And uh, the sunken eyes are still a thing, but this might also just be the stylization of the statue to give it that kind of Greek profile where the bridge of the nose and the eyebrow bone don't really have a dip in the middle, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he has short curly hair and the diadem. I feel like I could relate it to the coins that we've seen before. Yeah, you can see some family
1: resemblance, although there isn't anything that's... Yeah, he's a much, like, notable.
0: stalkier, you know, the the kind of build that we've had before of, like, stout features. Yeah, the more traditional Macedonian features. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Compared <laughs> to the other bust that we've seen that was...
1: Yeah, Antiochus the Great. Yes. Was a lot more lithe.
0: Well, it was less stylized, so it was more mm-hmm. human-looking. But also, Antiochus the Great had much more, like, angular features to him. Yes, he was Thinner he was face, sharper, like, and, yeah. yeah sunken cheeks and such but yeah
1: yeah i'm not terribly impressed i think it's fine, honestly i was thinking about a four mostly because there's nothing that just makes it pop like it's nice that we get a bust okay cool but there's nothing that makes me oh yes i definitely remember this face it's iconic it just seems like a guy though yeah i think i'm going for i don't know if to go for no nah, a three it sounds harsh because we have a bust and coins but I think a four is what I'm going to aim for. How about you, Cyril?
0: Actually, I think a four is pretty good. I like that it is cont- yeah. it is contemporary, right? It is. It is. Yeah. So? It's damaged, okay. but that gives it a bit of personality. I like it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think a four is fine. Okay, fair. So with a four
1: and a four, he gets a two out of five for face of faces. Next
0: category is lengthiness. How long do you think this man reigned? Ugh. Boy, was I not paying attention to any of the dates. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think I gave many anyway, but yeah. What is the feeling? How long does it feel? Well, he's had a child, which he had already mm-hmm. after starting raining. True. And you mentioned that this boy is like about 12. Thereabouts.
1: So... I mean, 12 is a bit
0: old, but 10, probably 10-12, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd say, yeah, maybe 11 years Twelve years. Ah, well, I was going to say, but you know, <laughs> close enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, from one
1: seventy-five to one sixty-three BC, that gives him a total of twelve years, which dividing by ten gives us a one point two out of five for lengthiness. Which brings us to the total score of forty-seven point two out of one hundred points, which places him between Xerxes the first and Antiochus the first. So it's an honorable number of points, mostly due to the, all the scandal. <laughs> but you know, I think it's pretty significant. No wait, he has four no, wait. No, see he has 47.2, which puts him just 0.1 above Xerxes the first and below Whoa. Cyrus the second. Cyrus the Great. Huh, of course. Interesting. So he's just barely above Xerxes. If he just was a tiny bit less scandalous, he would have not made it. But there we are. So interesting results. But we have a final question we need to discuss. Is he shocking enough, scandalous enough, humiliated enough, and potential enough to be a Shahanshah? Or is he just a
0: Shahanah? It's interesting. I think there's but something there. I- I'm actually, like, I'm not... Uh, I do have to think about it. Other times I'm just like, no, this is, you know, yeah. no way. We have a very clear... This, like, I could yeah. see the argument for it. I think I'm
1: more on the pro side. I'm willing to be persuaded. I, I think am that just so the bewildered Day of is just by how so pathetic incredible. this
0: man is. I know, that's so <laughs> I am amazing. so this, bewildered like... <laughs> by how he sold himself to the Romans. <laughs> and how this just, like, breaks my heart. I cannot. No, I think that scene Boot is just
1: so huge <laughs> that it's just like... Wow, that I definitely remember him. I know. For all the wrong reasons. Yeah, but before redoing the episodes, I didn't remember Antiochus the Second or Seleucus the Fourth, but him I was like, oh yes, I'm looking forward to this episode. He was like, ah, I know this guy. He yeah. has this good scene. Listen,
0: listen, does this mean he would get to talk <laughs> with Antiochus the Great? Because yes, he would. Because <laughs> get to go talk to Dad oh about my what God. happened. Dad, you know the Romans that like essentially wrecked the empire and you were doing so amazing and then they terribly defeated you and how you never recovered from that? I like those guys. I wish we were
1: more like them. I am the Seleucid version of a Roma boo.
0: You know what? Only to make this happen and to have this like headcanon of this reunion and just to like have Antiochus the Great absolutely be disappointed. In his song, <laughs> I want to. Fair. I will give it the Shahan sa- Cha.
1: Okay, let's go for it.
0: <laughs> I cannot believe that I've done this, but I've done this. So, <laughs> so congratulations, Antiochus
1: the Fourth, Epiphanes. You are a Shahanshah and and can go join your father, Antiochus the Great, in the Paradise Gardens and explain to him exactly why you sold yourself out to the Romans when everything your father did was to try and not do that. Right. But hey, at least you weren't murdered the same way as your father, so congratulations on that.
0: (laughs) Unbelievable.
1: Okay, so that leads us to the end of our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you had fun with another Shah and Shah. Hooray, after so few episodes, we're spoiling you.
0: Hmm. You can thank us by leaving a review and telling us, you know, in your podcast. Yes, please do.
1: We love receiving reviews. They make people know that we exist. And it's nice to hear from you, because why not? And yeah, so if you want to find out what happens with the Tale of Two Regents, join us next week with Antiochus V and figure out how long does he last? Does he get caught in the crossfire? Who knows? Is the Roman Senate going to mess things up again? God, of course Feel they free are. to find out in the next episodes. Because, well, Rome will never stop being a pain in our necks until the end of at least this season. So we'll see how that goes. So thank you for listening. We hope you have a nice week and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye.
0: Bye-bye.